Hello and welcome to Canada Week on the Mayorzine. This week we finally have the wonderful and prolific Lucy Maud Montgomery joining the program. There's just so much to say about her that we could be here for hours. If you don't already know her by name, you may know her from Anne of Green Gables. She is that Lucy Maud Montgomery, and I'm excited to bring you all 530 of her short stories. Just not all in this week's issue. Avon joins us again this week to properly do her justice. So let's just dive right into it, shall we? When Jack and Jill Took a Hand By Lucy Maud Montgomery Jack's side of it. Jill says I have to begin this story because it was me, I mean it was I, who made all the trouble in the first place. That is so like Jill. She is such a good hand at forgetting. Why, it was she who suggested the plot to me. I should never have thought of it myself. Not that Jill is any smarter than I am either, but girls are such creatures for planning up mischief and leading other folks into it and then laying the blame on them when things go wrong. How could I tell Dick would act so like a mule? I thought grown-up folks had more sense. Aunt Tommy was down on me for weeks while she thought Jill a regular heroine. But there, girls don't know anything about being fair, and I am determined I will never have anything more to do with them and their love affairs as long as I live. Jill says I will change my mind when I grow up, but I won't. Still, Jill is a pretty good sort of girl. I have to scold her sometimes, but if any other chap tried to, I would punch his head for him. I suppose it is time I explained who Dick and Aunt Tommy are. Dick is our minister. He hasn't been it very long. He only came a year ago. I shall never forget how surprised Jill and I were that first Sunday we went to church and saw him. We had always thought that ministers had to be old. All the ministers we knew were. Mr. Grinnell, the one before Dick came, must have been as old as Methuselah. But Dick was young and good-looking. Jill said she thought it a positive sin for a minister to be so good-looking. It didn't seem Christian. But that was just because all the ministers we knew happened to be homely, so that it didn't appear natural. Dick was tall and pale and looked as if he had heaps of brains. He had thick, curly brown hair and big, dark blue eyes. Jill said his eyes were like an archangel's, but how could she tell? She never saw an archangel. I liked his nose. It was so straight and finished-looking. Mr. Grinnell had the worst-looking nose you ever saw. Jill and I used to make poetry about it in church to keep from falling asleep when he preached such awful long sermons. Dick preached great sermons. They were so nice and short. It was such fun to hear him thump the pulpit when he got excited, and when he got more excited still, he would lean over the pulpit, his face all white, and talk so low and solemn that it would just send the most gorgeous thrills through you. Dick came to Alwood. Uh, that's our place. I hate these explanations. Dick came to Alwood quite a lot, even before Aunt Tommy came. He and Father were chums. They had been in college together, and Father said Dick was the best football player he ever knew. Jill and I soon got acquainted with him, and this was another uncanny thing. We had never thought it possible to get acquainted with a minister. Jill said she didn't think it proper for a real live minister to be so chummy. 
But then Jill was a little jealous because Dick and I, both being men, were better friends than he and she could be. He taught me to skate that winter and fence with canes and do long division. I could never understand long division before Dick came, although I was away on in fractions. Jill has just been in and says I ought to explain that Dick's name wasn't Dick. I do wish Jill would mind her own business. Of course it wasn't. His real name was the Reverend Stephen Richmond, but Jill and I always called him Dick behind his back. It seemed so jolly and venturesome somehow to speak of a minister like that. Only we had to be careful not to let father and mother hear us. Mother wouldn't even let father call Dick Stephen. She said it would set a bad example of familiarity to the children. Mother is an old darling. She won't believe we're half as bad as we are. Well, early in May comes Aunt Tommy. I must explain who Aunt Tommy is or Jill will be at me again. She is father's youngest sister, and her real name is Bertha Gordon, but father has always called her Tommy and she likes it. Jill and I had never seen Aunt Tommy before, but we took to her from the start because she was so pretty and because she talked to us just as if we were grown up. She called Jill Elizabeth, and Jill would adore a Hottentot who called her Elizabeth. Aunt Tommy is the prettiest girl I ever saw. If Jill is half as good-looking when she gets to be 20, she's only 10 now, same age as I am. We're twins. I shall be proud of her for a sister. Aunt Tommy is all white and dimpled. She has curly red hair and big, jolly brown eyes and scrumptious freckles. I do like freckles in a girl, although Jill goes wild if she thinks she has one on her nose. When we talked of writing this story, Jill said I wasn't to say that Aunt Tommy had freckles because it wouldn't sound romantic. But I don't care. She has freckles and I think they are all right. We went to church with Aunt Tommy the first Sunday after she came, one on each side of her. Aunt Tommy is the only girl in the world I'd walk hand in hand with before people. She looked fine that day. She had on a gorgeous dress, all frills and ruffles, and a big white floppy hat. I was proud of her for an aunt, I can tell you, and I was anxious for Dick to see her. When he came up to speak to me and Jill after church came out, I said, Aunt Tommy, this is Mr. Richmond, just like the grown-up people say. Aunt Tommy and Dick shook hands, and Dick got red as anything. It was funny to see him. The very next evening, he came down to Alwood. We hadn't expected him until Tuesday, for he never came Monday night before. That is Father's Night for going to a lodge meeting. Mother was away this time, too. I met Dick on the porch and took him into the parlor, thinking what a bully talk we could have all alone together without Jill bothering around. But in a minute, Aunt Tommy came in, and she and Dick began to talk, and I just couldn't get a word in edgewise. I got so disgusted I started out, but I don't believe they ever noticed I was gone. I liked Aunt Tommy very well, but I didn't think she had any business to monopolize Dick like that when he and I were such old chums. Outside, I came across Jill. She was sitting all alone in the dark, curled up on the edge of the veranda just where she could see into the parlor through the big glass door. I sat down beside her, for I wanted sympathy. Dick's in there talking to Aunt Tommy, I said. I don't see what makes him want to talk to her. What a goose you are, said Jill in an aggravatingly patronizing way of hers. Why, Dick has fallen in love with Aunt Tommy. Honest, I jumped. I never was so surprised. How do you know? I asked. Because I do, said Jill. I knew it yesterday at church, and I think it is so romantic. I don't see how you can tell, I said, and I didn't. You'll understand better when you get older, said Jill.
Sometimes Jill talks as if she were a hundred years older than I am instead of being a twin. And really, sometimes I think she is older. I didn't think ministers ever fell in love, I protested. Some do, said Jill sagely. Mr. Grinnell wouldn't ever, I suppose, but Dick is different. I'd like him for a husband myself, but he'd be too old for me by the time I grew up, so I suppose I'll have to let Aunt Tommy have him. It will all be in the family anyhow, that is one comfort. I think Aunt Tommy ought to have me for a flower girl, and I'll wear pink silk clouded over with white chiffon and carry a big bouquet of roses. Jill, you take my breath away, I said, and she did. My imagination couldn't travel as fast as that. But after I had thought the idea over a bit, I liked it. It was a good deal like a book. And besides, a minister is a respectable thing to have in a family. We must help them all we can, said Jill. What can we do? I asked. We must praise Dick to Aunt Tommy and Aunt Tommy to Dick, and we must keep out of the way. We mustn't ever hang around when they want to be alone, said Jill. I don't want to give up being chums with Dick, I grumbled. We must be self-sacrificing, said Jill. And that sounded so fine it reconciled me to the attempt. We sat there and watched Dick and Aunt Tommy for an hour. I thought they were awfully prim and still. If I'd been Dick, I'd have gone over and hugged her. I'd said so to Jill, and Jill was shocked. She said it wouldn't be proper when they weren't even engaged. When Dick went away, Aunt Tommy came out to the veranda and discovered us. She sat down between us and put her arms about us. Aunt Tommy has such cute ways. I like your minister very much, she said. He's bully, I said. He's as handsome as a prince, Jill said. He preaches splendid sermons. He makes people sit up in church, I can tell you, I said. He has a heavenly tenor voice, Jill said. He's got a magnificent muscle, I said. He has the most poetical eyes, Jill said. He swims like a duck, I said. He looks just like a Greek god, Jill said. I'm sure Jill couldn't have known what a Greek god looked like, but I suppose she got the comparison out of some novel. Jill is always reading novels. She borrows them from the cook. Aunt Tommy laughed and said, You darlings. For the next three months, Jill and I were wild. It was just like reading a serial story to watch Dick and Aunt Tommy. One day when Dick came, Aunt Tommy wasn't quite ready to come down, so Jill and I went into the parlor to help things along. We knew we hadn't much time, so we began right off. Aunt Tommy is the jolliest girl I know, I said. She is as beautiful as a dream, Jill said. She can play games as good as a boy, I said. She does the most elegant fancy work, Jill said. She never gets mad, I said. She plays and sings divinely, Jill said. She can cook awfully good things, I said, for I was beginning to run short of compliments. Jill was horrified. She said afterwards that it wasn't a bit romantic. But I don't care. I believe Dick liked it, for he smiled with his eyes just as he always does when he's pleased. Girls don't understand everything. But at the end of three months, we began to get anxious. Things were going so slow. Dick and Aunt Tommy didn't seem a bit further ahead than at first. Jill said it was because Aunt Tommy didn't encourage Dick enough. I do wish we could hurry them up a little, she said. At this rate, they will never be married this year, and by next, I'll be too big to be a flower girl. I'm stretching out horribly as it is. Mother has had to let down my frocks again. I wish they would get engaged and have done with it, I said. 
My mind would be at rest then. It's all Dick's fault. Why doesn't he ask Aunt Tommy to marry him? What's making him so slow about it? If I wanted a girl to marry me, but I wouldn't ever, but if I wanted a girl to marry me, I'd tell her so right spang off. I suppose ministers have to be more dignified, said Jill. But three months ought to be enough time for anyone, and Aunt Tommy is only going to be here another month. If Dick could be made a little jealous, it would hurry him up, and he could be made jealous if you had any spunk about you. I guess I've got more spunk than you have, I said. The trouble with Dick is this, said Jill. There is nobody else coming to see Aunt Tommy, and he thinks he is sure of her. If you could tell him something different, it would stir him up. Are you sure it would? I asked. It always does in novels, said Jill. And that settled it, of course. Jill and I fixed up what I was to say, and Jill made me say it over and over again to be sure I had it right. I told her, sarcastically, that she'd better say it herself, and then it would be done properly. Jill said she would if it were Aunt Tommy, but when it was Dick, it was better for a man to do it. So, of course, I agreed. I didn't know when I would have a chance to stir Dick up, but Providence, so Jill said, favored us. Aunt Tommy didn't expect Dick down the next night, so she and father and mother all went away somewhere. Dick came after all, and Jill sent me into the parlor to tell him. He was standing before the mantel looking at Aunt Tommy's picture. There was such an adoring look in his eyes, I could see it quite plain in the mirror before him. I practiced that look a lot before my own glass after that, because I thought it might come in handy sometime, you know. But I guess I couldn't have got it just right, because when I tried it on Jill, she asked me if I had a pain. Well, Jack, old man, said Dick, sitting down on the sofa. I sat down before him. Aunt Tommy is out, I said, to get the worst over. I guess you like Aunt Tommy pretty well, don't you, Mr. Richmond? Yes, said Dick softly. So do other men, I said, mysterious as Jill had ordered me. Dick thumped one of the sofa pillows. Yes, I suppose so, he said. There's a man in New York who just worships Aunt Tommy, I said. He writes her most every day and sends her books and music and elegant presents. I guess she's pretty fond of him, too. She keeps his photograph on her bedroom table, and I've seen her kissing it. I stopped there, not because I had said all I had to say, but because Dick's face scared me. Honest, it did. It had gone all white, like it does in the pulpit sometimes when he is tremendously in earnest, only ten times worse. But all he said was, Is your Aunt Bertha engaged to this... this man? Not exactly engaged, I said but I guess anybody else who wants to marry her will have to reckon with him. Dick got up. I think I won't wait this evening, he said. I wish you'd stay and have a talk with me, I said. I haven't had a talk with you for ages, and I have a million things to tell you. Dick smiled as if it hurt him to smile. I can't tonight, Jackie. Some other time we'll have a good powwow, old chap. He took his hat and went out. Then Jill came flying in to hear all about it. I told her as well as I could, but she wasn't satisfied. If Dick took it so quietly, she declared, I couldn't have made it strong enough. If you had seen Dick's face, I said, you would have thought I made it plenty strong. And I'd like to know what Aunt Tommy will say to all this when she finds out. Well, you didn't tell a thing but what was true, said Jill. The next evening was Dick's regular night for coming, but he didn't come, although Jill and I went down the lane a dozen times to watch for him.
The night after that was prayer meeting night. Dick had always walked home with Aunt Tommy and us, but that night he didn't. He only just bowed and smiled as he passed us in the porch. Aunt Tommy hardly spoke all the way home, only just held tight to Jill's and my hands. But after we got home, she seemed in great spirits and laughed and chatted with father and mother. What does this mean? asked Jill, grabbing me in the hall on her way to bed. You'd better get another novel from the cook and find out, I said grouchily. I was disgusted with things in general, and Dick in particular. The three weeks that followed were awful. Dick never came near Alwood. Jill and I fought every day we were so cross and disappointed. Nothing had come out right, and Jill blamed it all on me. She said I must have made it too strong. There was no fun in anything, not even in going to church. Dick hardly thumped the pulpit at all, and when he did, it was only a measly little thump. But Aunt Tommy didn't seem to worry any. She sang and laughed and joked from morning to night. She doesn't mind Dick's making an ass of himself anyway. That's one consolation, I said to Jill. She is breaking her heart about it, said Jill, and that's your consolation. I don't believe it, I said. What makes you think so? She cries every night, said Jill. I can tell by the look of her eyes in the morning. She doesn't look half as woebegone over it as you do, I said. If I had her reason for looking woebegone, I wouldn't look it either, said Jill. I asked her to explain her meaning, but she only said that little boys couldn't understand those things. Things went on like this for another week. Then they reached, so Jill says, a climax. If Jill knows what that means, I don't. But Pinky Carew was the climax. Pinky's name is James, but Jill and I always called him Pinky because we couldn't bear him. He took to calling at Alwood, and one evening he took Aunt Tommy out driving. Then Jill came to me. Something has got to be done, she said resolutely. I am not going to have Pinky Carew for an Uncle Tommy, and that is all there is about it. You must go straight to Dick and tell him the truth about the New York man. I looked at Jill to see if she were in earnest. When I saw that she was, I said, I wouldn't take all the gems of Golconda and go and tell Dick that I'd been hoaxing him. You can do it yourself, Jill Gordon. You didn't tell him anything that wasn't true, said Jill. I don't know how a minister might look upon it, I said. Anyway, I won't go. Then I suppose I've got to, said Jill very dolefully. Yes, you'll have to, I said. And this finishes my part of the story and Jill is going to tell the rest. But you needn't believe everything she says about me in it. Jill's Side of It Jackie has made a fearful muddle of his part, but I suppose I shall just have to let it go. You couldn't expect much better of a boy. But I am determined to re-describe Aunt Tommy for the way Jackie has done it is just disgraceful. I know exactly how to do it, the way it is always done in stories. Aunt Tommy is divinely beautiful. Her magnificent wealth of burnished auburn hair flows back in amethystine waves from her sun-kissed brow. Her eyes are gloriously dark and deep, like midnight lakes mirroring the stars of heaven. Her features are like sculptured marble, and her mouth is like a trembling, curving Cupid's bow. This is a classical illusion, luscious and glowing as a dewy rose. Her creamy skin is as fair and flawless as the inner petals of a white lily. 
She may have a weeny, teeny freckle or two in summer, but you'd never notice. Her slender form is matchless in its symmetry, and her voice is like the ripple of a woodland brook. There, I'm sure that's ever so much better than Jackie's description, and now I can proceed with a clear conscience. Well, I didn't like the idea of going and explaining to Dick very much, but it had to be done unless I wanted to run the risk of having Pinky Carew in the family. So I went the next morning. I put on my very prettiest pink organdy dress and did my hair the new way, which is very becoming to me. When you are going to have an important interview with a man, it is always well to look your very best. I put on my big hat with the wreath of pink roses that Aunt Tommy had brought me from New York and took my spandy ruffled parasol. With your shielder upon it, Jill, said Jackie when I started. This is another classical illusion. I went straight up the hill and down the road to the manse where Dick lived with his old housekeeper, Mrs. Dodge. She came to the door when I knocked, and I said, very politely, Can I see the Reverend Stephen Richmond, if you please? Mrs. Dodge went upstairs and came right back, saying, Would I please go up to the study? Up I went, my heart in my mouth, I can tell you. And there was Dick among his books, looking so pale and sorrowful and interesting for all the world like Lord Algernon Francis in the splendid cereal in the paper Cook Took. There was a Madonna on his desk that looked just like Aunt Tommy. Good evening, Miss Elizabeth, said Dick, just as if I were grown up, you know. Won't you sit down? Try that green velvet chair. I'm sure it was created for a pink dress, and unfortunately neither Mrs. Dodge nor I possess one. How are all your people? We're all pretty well, thank you, I said. Except Aunt Tommy, she, I was going to say, she cries every night after she goes to bed. But I remembered just in time that if I were in Aunt Tommy's place, I wouldn't want a man to know I cried about him, even if I did. So I said instead, she has got a cold. Ah, indeed, I'm sorry to hear it, said Dick, politely but coldly, as if it were part of his duty as a minister to be sorry for anybody who had a cold. But as if, apart from that, it was not a concern of his if Aunt Tommy had galloping consumption. And Jack and I are terribly harrowed up in our minds, I went on. That is what I've come up to see you about. Well, tell me all about it, said Dick. I'm afraid to, I said. I know you'll be cross, even if you are a minister. It's about what Jack told you about that man in New York and Aunt Tommy. Dick turned as red as fire. I'd rather not discuss your Aunt Bertha's affairs, he said stiffly. You must hear this, I cried, feeling thankful that Jackie hadn't come after all, for he'd never have gotten any further ahead after that snub. It's all a mistake. There is a man in New York, and he just worships Aunt Tommy, and she just adores him. But he's 70 years old, and he's her Uncle Matthew, who brought her up ever since her father died, and you've heard her talking about him a hundred times. That's all. Cross my heart, solemn and true. You never saw anything like Dick's face when I stopped. It looked just like a sunrise. But he said slowly, Why did Jackie tell me such a... Tell me it in such a way. We wanted to make you jealous, I said. I put Jackie up to it. I didn't think it was in either of you to do such a thing, said Dick reproachfully. Oh, Dick, I cried. Fancy my calling him Dick right to his face. Jackie will never believe I really did it. He says I would never have dared. But it wasn't daring at all. It was just forgetting. Oh, Dick, we didn't mean any harm. We thought you weren't getting on fast enough, and we wanted to stir you up like they do in books. 
We thought if we made you jealous, it would work all right. We didn't mean any harm. Oh, please forgive us. I was just ready to cry. But that dear dick leaned over the table and patted my hand. There, there. It's all right. I understand, and of course I forgive you. Don't cry, sweetheart. The way Dick said sweetheart was perfectly lovely. I envied Aunt Tommy, and I wanted to keep on crying so that he would go on comforting me. And you'll come back to see Aunt Tommy again, I said. Dick's face clouded over. He got up and walked around the room several times before he said a word. Then he came and sat down beside me and explained it all to me, just as if I were grown up. Sweetheart, we'll talk this all out. You see, it is this way. Your Aunt Bertha is the sweetest woman in the world, but I'm only a poor minister and I have no right to ask her to share my life of hard work and self-denial. And even if I dared, I know she wouldn't do it. She doesn't care anything for me except as a friend. I never meant to tell her I cared for her, but I couldn't help going to Owlwood, even though I knew it was a weakness on my part. So now that I'm out of the habit of going, I think it would be wisest to stay put. It hurts dreadfully, but it would hurt worse after a while. Don't you agree with me, Miss Elizabeth? I thought hard and fast. If I were in Aunt Tommy's place, I mightn't want a man to know I cried about him, but I was quite sure I'd rather have him know than have him stay away because he didn't know. So I spoke right up. No, I don't, Mr. Richmond. Aunt Tommy does care. You just ask her. She cries every blessed night because you never come to Owlwood. Oh, Elizabeth, said Dick. He got up and stalked about the room again. You'll come back, I said. Yes, he answered. I drew a long breath. It was such a responsibility off my mind. Then you'd better come down with me right off, I said. For Pinky Carew had her out driving last night, and I want to stop put to that as soon as possible. Even if he is rich, he's a perfect pig. Dick got his hat and came. We walked up the road in lovely, creamy yellow twilight, and I was oh so happy. Isn't it just like a novel, I said. I'm afraid, Elizabeth, said Dick preachily, that you read too many novels, and not the right kind either. Some of these days I am going to ask you to promise me that you will read no more books except those your mother and I pick out for you. You don't know how squelched I felt. And I knew I would have to promise, too, for Dick can make me do anything he likes. When we got to Owlwood, I left Dick in the parlor and flew up to Aunt Tommy's room. I found her all scrunched up on her bed in the dark with her face in the pillows. Aunt Tommy, Dick is down in the parlor and he wants to see you, I said. Didn't Aunt Tommy fly up, though? Oh, Jill, but I'm not fit to be seen. Tell him I'll be down in a few minutes. I knew Aunt Tommy wanted to fix her hair and dab rose water on her eyes, so I trotted meekly down and told Dick. Then I flew out to Jackie and dragged him around to the glass door. It was all hung over with vines and a wee bit ajar so that we could see and hear everything that went on. Jackie said it was only sneaks that listened, but he didn't say it until next day. At the time, he listened just as hard as I did. I didn't care if it was mean. I just had to listen. I was perfectly wild to hear how a man would propose and how a girl would accept, and it was too good a chance to lose. Presently, in sweeps Aunt Tommy, in an elegant dress, not a hair out of place. She looked perfectly sweet, only her nose was a little red. Dick looked at her for just a moment, then he stepped forward and took her right into his arms. 
Aunt Tommy drew back her head for just a second as if she were going to crush him in the dust, and then she just all kind of crumpled up and her face went down on his shoulder. Oh, Bertha, I love you. I love you, he said, just like that, all quick and jerky. You, you have taken a queer way of showing it, said Aunt Tommy, all muffled. I, I was led to believe that there was another man whom you cared for, and I thought you were only trifling with me, so I sulked like a jealous fool. Bertha, darling, do you love me a little, don't you? Aunt Tommy lifted her head and stuck up her mouth and he kissed her. And there it was, all over, and they were engaged as quick as that, mind you. He didn't even go down on his knees. There was nothing romantic about it, and I was never so disgusted in my life. When I grow up and anybody proposes to me, he will have to be a good deal more flowery and eloquent than that, I can tell you, if he wants me to listen to him. I left Jackie peeking still, and I went to bed. After a long time, Aunt Tommy came up to my room and sat down on my bed in the moonlight. You dear, blessed Elizabeth, she said. It's all right then, is it? I asked. Yes, it is all right, thanks to you, dearie. We are to be married in October, and somebody must be my little flower girl. I think Dick will make a splendid husband, I said. But Aunt Tommy, you mustn't be too hard on Jackie. He only wanted to help things along, and it was I who put him up to it in the first place. You have atoned by going and confessing, said Aunt Tommy with a hug. Jackie had no business to put that off on you. I'll forgive him, of course, but I'll punish him by not letting him know that I will for a little while. Then I'll ask him to be a page at my wedding. Well, the wedding came off last week. It was a perfectly gorgeous affair. Aunt Tommy's dress was a dream, and so was mine, all pink silk and chiffon and carnations. Jackie made a magnificent page, too, in a suit of white velvet. The wedding cake was four stories high, and Dick looked perfectly handsome. He kissed me, too, right after he kissed Aunt Tommy. So everything turned out all right, and I believe Dick would never have dared to speak up if we hadn't helped things along. But Jackie and I have decided that we will never meddle in an affair of the kind again. It is too hard on the nerves. Avon was kind enough to do that entire story, so patrons of the Mayorzine will get an exclusive Avon-only version popping up on Patreon anytime now. It won't be in the omnibus either, so the only way to hear it is subscribing as a patron. And now I turn over the reins once more to Avon to finish out the rest of this issue. A Correspondence and a Climax by Lucy Maud Montgomery At sunset, Sydney hurried to her room to take off the soiled and faded cotton dress she had worn while milking. She had milked eight cows and pumped water for the milk cans afterward in the dull end of a hot summer day. She did that every night. But tonight she had hurried more than usual because she wanted to get her letter written before the early farm bedtime. She had been thinking it out while she milked the cows in the stuffy little pen behind the barn. 
This monthly letter was the only pleasure and stimulant in her life. Existence would have been, so Sidney thought, a dreary, unbearable blank without it. She cast aside her milking dress with a thrill of distaste that tingled to her rosy fingertips. As she slipped into her blueprint afternoon dress, her aunt called to her from below. Sydney ran out to the dark little entry and leaned over the stair railing. Below in the kitchen there was a hubbub of laughing, crying, quarreling children, and a reek of bad tobacco smoke drifted up to the girl's disgusted nostrils. Aunt Jane was standing at the foot of the stairs with a lamp in one hand and a year-old baby clinging to the other. She was a big, shapeless woman with a round, good-natured face. Cheerful and vulgar as a sunflower was Aunt Jane at all times and occasions. I want to run over and see how Mrs. Brixby is this evening, Siddy, and you must take care of the baby till I get back. Sidney sighed and went downstairs for the baby. It never would have occurred to her to protest or be petulant about it. She had all her aunt's sweetness of disposition, if she resembled her in nothing else. She had not grumbled because she had to rise at four that morning, get breakfast, milk the cows, bake bread, prepare seven children for school, get dinner, preserve twenty quarts of strawberries, get tea, and milk the cows again. All her days were alike as far as hard work and dullness went, but she accepted them cheerfully and uncomplainingly but she did resent having to look after the baby when she wanted to write her letter. She carried the baby to her room, spread a quilt on the floor for him to sit on, and gave him a box of empty spools to play with. Fortunately, he was a phlegmatic infant, fond of staying in one place, and not given to roaming about in search of adventures. But Sidney knew she would have to keep an eye on him, and it would be distracting to literary effort. She got out her box of paper and sat down by the little table at the window with a small kerosene lamp at her elbow. The room was small, a mere box above the kitchen which Sidney shared with two small cousins. Her bed and the cot where the little girl slept filled up almost all the available space. The furniture was poor, but everything was neat. It was the only neat room in the house, indeed, for tidiness was no besetting virtue of Aunt Jane's. Opposite Sydney was a small muslin and befrilled toilet table, above which hung an eight-by-six-inch mirror, in which Sydney saw herself reflected as she devoutly hoped other people did not see her. Just at that particular angle, one eye appeared to be as large as an orange, while the other was the size of a pea, and the mouth zigzagged from ear to ear. Sydney hated that mirror as virulently as she could hate anything. It seemed to her to typify all that was unlovely in her life the mirror of existence into which her fresh young soul had looked for twenty years gave back to her wistful gaze just such distortions of fair hopes and ideals. Half of the little table by which she sat was piled high with books, old books, evidently well-read and well-bred books, classics of fiction and verse, every one of them, and all bearing on the flyleaf the name of Sidney Richmond, thereby meaning not the girl at the table, but her college-bred young father, who had died the day before she was born. Her mother had died the day after, and Sidney thereupon had come into the hands of good Aunt Jane, with those books for her dowry, since nothing else was left after the expenses of the double funeral had been paid. One of the books had Sidney Richmond's name printed on the title page instead of written on the flyleaf. It was a thick little volume of poems published in his college days. Musical, unsubstantial, pretty little poems, every one of which the girl Sidney loved and knew by heart. 
Sydney dropped her pointed chin in her hands and looked dreamily out into the moonlit night, where she thought her letter out a little more fully before beginning to write. Her big brown eyes were full of wistfulness and romance, for Sydney was romantic, albeit a faithful and understanding acquaintance with her father's books had given to her romance refinement and reason, and the delicacy of her own nature had imparted to it a self-respecting bias. Presently she began to write, with a flush of real excitement on her face. In the middle of things, the baby choked on a small twist spool, and Sidney had to catch him up by the heels and hold him head downward until the trouble was ejected. Then she had to soothe him, and finally write the rest of her letter, holding him on one arm and protecting the epistle from the grabs of his sticky little fingers. It was certainly letter-writing under difficulties, but Sidney seemed to deal with them mechanically. Her soul and understanding were elsewhere. Four years before, when Sidney was sixteen, still calling herself a schoolgirl by reason of the fact that she could be spared to attend school four months in the winter when work was slack, she had been much interested in the Maple Leaf Department of the Montreal Weekly her uncle took. It was a page given over to youthful Canadians and filled with their contributions in the way of letters, verses, and prize essays. Noms de plume were assigned to these, badges were sent to those who joined the Maple Leaf Club, and a general delightful sense of mystery pervaded the department. Often a letter concluded with a request to the club members to correspond with the writer. One such request went from Sydney under the pen name of Ellen Douglas. The girl was lonely in Plainfield. She had no companions or associates such as she cared for. The Maple Leaf Club represented all that her life held of outward interest, and she longed for something more. Only one answer came to Ellen Douglas, and that was forwarded to her by the long-suffering editor of The Maple Leaf. It was from John Lincoln of the Bar Inn Ranch, Alberta. He wrote that, although his age debarred him from membership in the club, he was twenty and the limit was eighteen, he read the letters of the department with much interest and often had thought of answering some of the requests for correspondence. He never had done so, but Ellen Douglas's letter was so interesting that he had decided to write to her. Would she be kind enough to correspond with him? Life on the bar inn, ten miles from the outposts of civilization, was lonely. He was two years out from the east and had not yet forgotten to be homesick at times. Sidney liked the letter and answered it. Since then, they had written to each other regularly. There was nothing sentimental, hinted at or implied, in the correspondence. Whatever the faults of Sidney's romantic visions were, they did not tend to precocious flirtation. The Plainfield boys, attracted by her beauty and repelled by her indifference and aloofness, could have told that. She never expected to meet John Lincoln, nor did she wish to do so. In the correspondence itself, she found her pleasure. John Lincoln wrote breezy accounts of ranch life and adventures on the far western plains so alien and remote from snug, humdrum, plain-field life that Sidney always had the sensation of crossing a gulf when she opened a letter from the bar inn. As for Sidney's own letter, this is the way it read as she wrote it. The Evergreens, Plainfield. Dear Mr. Lincoln, The very best letter I can write in the half hour before the carriage will be at the door to take me to Mrs. Braddon's dance shall be yours tonight. I am sitting here in the library, arrayed in my smartest, newest, whitest, silkiest gown, with a string of pearls which Uncle James gave me today about my throat, the dear, glistening, sheeny things, and I am looking forward to the dances and delight of the evening with keen anticipation. 
You asked me in your last letter if I did not sometimes grow weary of my endless round of dances and dinners and social functions. No, no, never. I enjoy every one of them, every minute of them. I love life and its bloom and brilliancy. I love meeting new people. I love the ripple of music, the hum of laughter and conversation. Every morning when I awaken, the new day seems to be a good fairy who will bring me some beautiful gift of joy. The gift she gave me today was my sunset gallop on my gray mare lady. The thrill of it is in my veins yet. I distanced the others who rode with me and led the homeward canter alone, rocking along a dark, gleaming road, shadowy with tall firs and pines, whose balsam made all the air resinous around me. Before me was a long valley filled with purple dusk, and beyond it meadows of sunset and great lakes of saffron and rose, where a soul might lose itself in color. On my right was the harbor, silvered over with a rising moon. Oh, it was all glorious. The clear air with its salt sea tang, the aroma of the pines, the laughter of my friends behind me, the spring and rhythm of lady's gray satin body beneath me. I wanted to ride on so forever, straight into the heart of the sunset. Then home and to dinner. We have a house full of guests at present, one of them an old statesman with a massive silver head, and eyes that have looked into people's thoughts so long that you have an uncanny feeling that they can see right through your soul, and read motives you dare not avow even to yourself. I was terribly in awe of him at first, but when I got acquainted with him I found him charming. He is not above talking delightful nonsense even to a girl. I sat by him at dinner, and he talked to me. Not nonsense either, this time. He told me of his political contests and diplomatic battles. He was wise and witty and whimsical. I felt as if I were drinking some rare, stimulating mental wine. What a privilege it is to meet such men and take a peep through their wise eyes at the fascinating game of empire-building. I met another clever man a few evenings ago. A lot of us went for a sail on the harbor. Mrs. Braddon's house party came too. We had three big white boats that skimmed down the moonlit channel like great white seabirds. There was another boat far across the harbor, and the people in it were singing. The music drifted over the water to us, so sad and sweet and beguiling that I could have cried for very pleasure. One of Mrs. Braddon's guests said to me, that is the soul of music with all its sense and earthliness refined away. I hadn't thought about him before. I hadn't even caught his name in the general introduction. He was a tall, slight man with a worn, sensitive face and iron-gray hair. A quiet man who hadn't laughed or talked. But he began to talk to me then, and I forgot about all the others. I had never listened to anybody in the least like him. He talked of books and music, of art and travel. He had been all over the world and had seen everything everybody else had seen and everything they hadn't, too, I think. I seemed to be looking into an enchanted mirror where all my own dreams and ideals were reflected back to me, but made, oh, so much more beautiful. On my way home after the Braddon people had left us, somebody asked me how I liked Paul Moore. The man I had been talking with was Paul Moore, the great novelist. I was almost glad I hadn't known it while he was talking to me. I should have been too awed and reverential to have really enjoyed his conversation. As it was, I had contradicted him twice, and he had laughed and liked it. But his books will always have a new meaning to me henceforth, through the insight he himself has given me.
It is such meetings as these that give life its sparkle for me. But much of its abiding sweetness comes from my friendship with Margaret Raleigh. You will be weary of my rhapsodies over her, but she is such a rare and wonderful woman, much older than I am, but so young in heart and soul and freshness of feeling. She is to me mother and sister and wise, clear-sighted friend. To her I go with all my perplexities and hopes and triumphs. She has sympathy and understanding for my every mood. I love life so much for giving me such a friendship. This morning I wakened at dawn and stole away to the shore before anyone else was up. I had a delightful runaway. The long, low-lying meadows between the evergreens and the shore were dewy and fresh in that first light that was as fine and purely tinted as the heart of one of my white roses. On the beach, the water was purring in little blue ripples, and oh, the sunrise out there beyond the harbor. All the eastern heaven was abloom with it. And there was a wind that came dancing and whistling up the channel to replace the beautiful silence with a music more beautiful still. The rest of the folks were just coming downstairs when I got back to breakfast. They were all yawny, and some were grumpy. But I had washed my being in the sunrise and felt as blithesome as the day. Oh, life is so good to live. Tomorrow, Uncle James's new vessel, the White Lady, is to be launched. We are going to make a festive occasion of it, and I am to christen her with a bottle of cobwebby old wine. But I hear the carriage, and Aunt Jane is calling me. I had a great deal more to say about your letter, your big roundup, and your tribulations with your new cook. But I've only time now to say goodbye. You wish me a lovely time at the dance and a full program don't you? Yours sincerely, Sydney Richmond. Aunt Jane came home presently and carried away her sleeping baby. Sydney said her prayers, went to bed, and slept soundly and serenely. She mailed her letter the next day, and a month later an answer came. Sydney read it as soon as she left the post office, and walked the rest of the way home as in a nightmare, staring straight ahead of her with wide-open, unseeing brown eyes. John Lincoln's letter was short, but the pertinent paragraph of it burned itself into Sidney's brain. He wrote, I am going east for a visit. It is six years since I was home, and it seems like three times six. I shall go by the CPR, which passes through Plainfield, and I mean to stop off for a day. You will let me call and see you, won't you? I shall have to take your permission for granted, as I shall be gone before a letter from you can reach the bar N. I leave for the East in five days, and shall look forward to our meeting with all possible interest and pleasure. Sidney did not sleep that night, but tossed restlessly about or cried in her pillow. She was so pallid and hollow-eyed the next morning that Aunt Jane noticed it and asked her what the matter was. Nothing, said Sidney sharply. Sidney had never spoken sharply to her aunt before. The good woman shook her head. She was afraid the child was taking something. Don't do much today, Sitty, she said kindly. Just lie around and take it easy till you get rested up. I'll fix you a dose of quinine. Sidney refused to lie around and take it easy. She swallowed the quinine meekly enough, but she worked fiercely all day, hunting out superfluous tasks to do. That night she slept the sleep of exhaustion, but her dreams were unenviable and the awakening was terrible. Any day, any hour, might bring John Lincoln to Plainfield. What should she do? Hide from him? Refuse to see him? But he would find out the truth just the same, 
she would lose his friendships and respect just as surely. Sidney trod the way of the transgressor and found that its thorns pierced to bone and marrow. Everything had come to an end. Nothing was left to her. In the untried recklessness of twenty untempered years, she wished she could die before John Lincoln came to Plainfield. The eyes of youth could not see how she could possibly live afterward. Some days later, a young man stepped from the CPR train at Plainfield Station and found his way to the one small hotel the place boasted. After getting his supper, he asked the proprietor if he could direct him to the Evergreens. Caleb Williams looked at his guest in bewilderment. Never heard of such a place, he said. It is the name of Mr. Conway's estate, Mr. James Conway, explained John Lincoln. Oh, Jim Conway's place, said Caleb. Didn't know that was what he called it. Certain I can tell you where to find it. You see that road out there? Well, just follow it straight along for a mile and a half till you come to a blacksmith's forge. Jim Conway's house is just this side of it on the right. Back from the road, a smart piece and no other handy. You can't mistake it. John Lincoln did not expect to mistake it once he found it. He knew by heart what it appeared like from Sidney's description. An old stately mansion of mellowed brick, covered with ivy and set back from the highway amid fine ancestral trees, with a pine grove behind it, a river to the left, and a harbor beyond. He strode along the road in the warm, ruddy sunshine of early evening. It was not a bad-looking road at all. The farmsteads sprinkled along it were for the most part snug and wholesome enough, yet somehow it was different from what he had expected it to be. And there was no harbor or glimpse of distant sea visible. Had the hotel keeper made a mistake? Perhaps he had meant some other James Conway. Presently he found himself before the blacksmith's forge. Beside it was a rickety, unpainted gate opening into a snake-fenced lane feathered here and there with scrubby little spruces. It ran down a bare hill, crossed a little ravine full of young white-stemmed birches, and up another bare hill to an equally bare crest where a farmhouse was perched. A farmhouse painted a stark, staring yellow and the ugliest thing in farmhouses that John Lincoln had ever seen, even among the log shacks of the West. He knew now that he had been misdirected, but as there seemed to be nobody about the forge, he concluded that he had better go to the yellow house and inquire within. He passed down the lane and over the little rustic bridge that spanned the brook. Just beyond was another homemade gate of poles. Lincoln opened it, or rather he had his hand on the hasp of twisted withes which secured it, when he was suddenly arrested by the apparition of a girl, who flashed around the curve of young birch beyond and stood before him with panting breath and quivering lips. I beg your pardon, said John Lincoln courteously, dropping the gate and lifting his hat. I am looking for the house of Mr. James Conway, the Evergreens. Can you direct me to it? That is Mr. James Conway's house, said the girl, with the tragic air and tone of one driven to desperation and an impatient gesture of her hand toward the yellow nightmare above them. I don't think he can be the one I mean, said Lincoln perplexedly. The man I am thinking of has a niece, Miss Richmond. There is no other James Conway in Plainfield, said the girl. This is his place. Nobody calls it the Evergreens but myself. I am Sidney Richmond. For a moment, they looked at each other across the gate, sheer amazement and bewilderment holding John Lincoln mute. Sidney, burning with shame, saw that this stranger was exceedingly good to look upon. 
tall, clean-limbed, broad-shouldered, with clear-cut bronzed features and a chin and eyes that would have done honor to any man. John Lincoln, among all his confused sensations, was aware that this slim, agitated young creature before him was the loveliest thing he had ever seen. So lithe was her figure, so glossy and dark and silken her bare, wind-ruffled hair, so big and brown and appealing her eyes, so delicately oval her flushed cheeks. He felt that she was frightened and in trouble, and he wanted to comfort and reassure her. But how could she be Sidney Richmond? I don't understand, he said perplexedly. Oh, Sidney threw out her hands in a burst of passionate protest. No, and you never will understand. I can't make you understand. I don't understand, said John Lincoln again. Can you be Sidney Richmond, the Sidney Richmond who has written to me for four years? I am. Then those letters were all lies, said Sidney bluntly and desperately. There was nothing true in them, nothing at all. This is my home. We are poor. Everything I told you about it and my life was just imagination. Then why did you write them? He asked blankly. Why did you deceive me? Oh, I didn't mean to deceive you. I never thought of such a thing. But when you asked me to write to you, I wanted to, but I didn't know what to write about to a stranger. I just couldn't write you about my life here, not because it was hard, but it was so ugly and empty. So I wrote instead of the life I wanted to live, the life I did live in imagination. And when once I had begun, I had to keep it up. I found it so fascinating, too. Those letters made that other life seem real to me. I never expected to meet you. These last four days since your letter came have been dreadful to me. Oh, please go away and forgive me if you can. I know I can never make you understand how it came about. Sydney turned away and hid her burning face against the cool white bark of the birch tree behind her. It was worse than she had even thought it would be. He was so handsome, so manly, so earnest-eyed. Oh, what a friend to lose. John Lincoln opened the gate and went up to her. There was a great tenderness in his face, mingled with a little kindly, friendly amusement. Please don't distress yourself so, Sydney, he said, unconsciously using her Christian name. I think I do understand. I'm not such a dull fellow as you take me for. After all, those letters were true. Or rather, there was truth in them. You revealed yourself more faithfully in them than if you had written truly about your narrow outward life. Sidney turned her flushed face and wet eyes slowly toward him, a little smile struggling out amid the clouds of woe. This young man was certainly good at understanding. You, you'll forgive me then, she stammered. Yes, if there is anything to forgive. And for my own part, I am glad you are not what I have always thought you were. If I had come here and found you what I expected, living in such a home as I expected, I never could have told you, or even thought of telling you, what you have come to mean to me in these lonely years during which your letters have been the things most eagerly looked forward to. I should have come this evening and spent an hour or so with you, and then have gone away on the train tomorrow morning, and that would have been all. But I find instead just a dreamy, romantic little girl much like my sister's at home, except that she is a good deal cleverer. And as a result, I mean to stay a week at Plainfield and come to see you every day, if you will let me. 
and on my way back to the bar inn, I mean to stop off at Plainfield again for another week, and then I shall tell you something more. Something it would be a little too bold to say now, perhaps, although I could say it just as well and truly. All this if I may. May I, Sydney? He bent forward and looked earnestly into her face. Sydney felt a new, curious, inexplicable thrill at her heart. Oh, yes, I suppose so, she said shyly. Now, take me up to the house and introduce me to your Aunt Jane, said John Lincoln in a satisfied tone. Thank you so much for contributing this week, Avon. And that wasn't even the story I had asked her to do. You'll hear that one in May. And that'll do it for Volume 2. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider checking out the Patreon if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon or on Audible or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so. Or leave a comment and let us know how we're doing. And by us, I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Mayorzine at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. a very special thanks to my patrons for helping to fund the Marazine. Dan Adler, Tammy Bulkeo, Richard, Miriam Rubin, and Avon Shore. You guys are awesome. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. All the music is licensed royalty-free from storyblocks.com. This production is copyright 2022 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.